Well, good morning from this side of the, the platform this morning. As Pastor Becker already uh, mentioned and alluded to, a number of us are going to be gone at the Berean Bible Fellowship Conference coming up, and I do have the, the privilege and joy of being able to speak at the conference. And this year, the theme is, is a continuation of something they started before, and that is walking through the book of Acts. As you can imagine, uh, that doesn't happen quickly. In fact, I think they have it plotted out over three entire conferences. <laughs> um, it t- it's going to take them three years because it's a big book. There's a lot going on. But that's a little bit of context for you for why uh, we're jumping from the heart of Nehemiah as we're actually starting to wrap things up there. Uh, and we're moving into the book of Acts. I uh, wanted to share with you the, the things I've been studying as I prepare here uh, for that. And uh, this morning we won't be sharing the entire passage because there's about three or four sermons in what they've given me, but I'm going to pare it down for, I believe, what we need uh, in, this, uh, uh, in our context as a church family. So with that, uh, there's a story that was once told of a passenger riding in a, in a taxi. And uh, I guess this was in the days before Uber and all of those sorts of services. So the, the passenger just leans forward and taps on the shoulder of the taxi driver to just uh, gently ask him a question and to get his attention. That driver, when the passenger just tapped on his shoulder, that driver screamed, lost control of the cab, nearly hit a bus, drove up, drove up over the curb, and he stopped just inches from a large plate window. For a few moments, everything was silent in that cab. Then the shaking driver, he says, Are you okay? I'm so sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. The badly shaken passenger apologized to the driver and said, I didn't realize that uh, a mere tap on the shoulder would startle and scare somebody so much. The driver replied, no, no, really, I I am the one who's sorry here. Uh, You see, it's entirely my fault. Today is my very first day driving a cab. But you see, it's not my first day driving. For the past 25 years, I've been driving a hearse. (laughs) He wasn't used to having company with him, was he? (laughs) I think we can all sympathize to one extent or another, not on riding in a hearse. But what this taxi driver must have felt uh, emotionally in that situation, we all know the common experience of what it's like to walk within the deep, comfortable grooves of life. That driver knew what it was to just go to work and not have to deal with the company, right? (laughs) And then when anything out of the ordinary, anything unfamiliar, anything unexpected happens, it brings in disruption. And uh, in that moment, it brought in fear. I do not know what is going on in this situation. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't planning on anything uh, like this at all. Any disruption 
to the delicate balance of the normal and the familiar can send ripples of change associated for everyone. It wasn't just the driver that was scared. I think that passenger probably has some stories to tell as well. And you see, the closer you are to the source of those ripples, the greater the impact, the greater the splash is going to be. The bigger and the more profound the change taking place, the greater and more disruptive the response is going to be, or the ripples will be for everyone else. In our passage this morning in Acts chapter 9, we're going to begin to examine the ripples of impact that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who was the chief enemy uh, and persecutor of the kingdom church and of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that the ripples that came from Saul converting and God changing his name to Paul and commissioning him to be the apostle of grace sent to the Gentiles. It's within the context of the narrative history. That's what the book of Acts is. It's just, it's history. It's not active teaching like you get when, as Pastor Kern takes us through the book of Corinthians, it's teaching and it's giving us doctrine and it's explaining a bunch of stuff. Acts is a book of history. It tells you things that happened and we have to put things together to make sense of it and then understand the significance of it. So we have to understand that when we're reading this. We're just looking at historical facts that it's just laying it out and its significance will derive as we put everything together, maintaining a big picture of what's going on here. But within the context of a narrative history uh, of transition from God working with the nation of Israel, that's everything that had been going up, going on in this point of the book of Acts. And then chapter 9, a huge shift happens when this enemy of the cross of Christ suddenly becomes its greatest, biggest champion with the salvation of the Apostle Paul. And those ripples, uh, we're going to see God transitioning away from his kingdom program and more and more revealing, and we understand what God is doing under his grace to the Gentiles. And so that is what's taking place here. Uh, it's hard for us to identify and make sense of these things. Remember, I said it's a book of history. We're just putting things together. Uh, and we'll sometimes read things in here where we grasp, well, why did he do it that way? We're forced to contend and answer some of these questions. And on all the questions that arise, I will assure you of this. I don't know why in every single one of these circumstances God chose to do these things. But I do know that God reveals himself to us in this historical account. And there are treasures, there are gems that he will draw us to himself. And it can and it will impact our lives. And what we do see is that God is working. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. God is working. And we'll see here, as we saw, uh, God worked in a difficult situation as Paul went back to Jerusalem to work with the disciples. He worked in that hard situation. He worked in the hard situation of Paul being persecuted by unbelieving Jews. And then he also worked in, in uh, continuing to build 
kingdom believers, and he worked in those situations, and he's still working that the church, uh, those churches were growing. And then he was working through Peter. Do I understand it all? No. But I see and I rejoice that God is working. You see, God is working out his plans and purposes. Ever since man fell in the garden and sin entered the world, God has been working his plan to get back into mankind's heart, to have, for man to be in that right relationship. He did choose the vessel of the nation of Israel to take that blessing and to take his life to be that channel of salvation for them to take it through the world. But their own disobedient, their own hard hearts where they just wouldn't trust the Lord. They would not follow in belief. He's setting them aside because of that. And he's showing through the Apostle Paul that he is going to do something different. And it's nevertheless, whether we see, uh, we shift the focus as we'll see in this passage Uh, to what Peter's doing and with the kingdom, God's working and he's unfolding his redemptive plan yet still. And the same is true of the Apostle Paul in this passage. Anytime that God works, there are big ripple effects that occur, so much so that we continue to see God working through Peter also, the lead apostle of the kingdom church, as many people marvel in amazement at what God is doing there. So as we explore these several accounts of God working in this early period of Paul's conversion and his early ministry, we're going to identify, uh, the big sermon we'd be identifying three, but we're going to really unpack one of them. But as we read this in our scripture passage, I'll give you kind of all three points that we see here. We remember by principle that God's truth dispels fear. The truth is always going to dispel fear. Whenever we walk into a situation, we can depend on God's truth because we know the truth sets free and there is no freedom in, in fear. But God's truth dispels fear. And that's really what we're going to be focusing on together as we look at Paul's early ministry. But as we move on and, and we saw the idea of those, those churches having peace now that their chief enemy was, part, was on the same team as them, now that he had come to faith in Christ and was his chief champion, uh, we see there that God's timing prevails over fear. Those churches at one point were living under heavy persecution, but yet God in his sovereignty, God in his providence saw fit to in his time save uh, Saul and convert him and to transform him into the Apostle Paul. And in his time, those churches had rest. And we see God's sovereign hand in all of that, and we walk away blessed by that. And then as we look at Peter's ministry here and it flourishing and entire cities coming to faith and turning to the Lord, multiple cities and people hearing it of this city and in amazement and wonder and it spreads and people over here, oh, I hear what's going. Hey, come over, help us. The amazement spread contagiously like wildfire and we see God's testimonies yield amazement in that passage. 
But let's shift our attention for the remainder of our time this morning to just see how the Apostle Paul, his early ministry, worked out. And we'll see again that God's truth dispels fear. First, we'll see that the reality of Paul's conversion eventually, not right away, but eventually transformed the Jerusalem disciples' disbelief. Look with me in Acts chapter 9, and we'll look at verse 26 together. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, why on earth did the disciples not want to believe that he was a disciple? Well, from a simply human point of view, they had legitimate concern that I would probably have myself. In fact, common sense almost dictates that you would be wary of a situation like this. Why? Because Saul of Tarsus had quite the reputation. You don't need to turn here with me, but if you're taking notes, you can see the the timeline. This is what was common knowledge about Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. Stephen, a spokesperson uh, for the nation of Israel, uh, was stoned to death for the fiery message that he was giving to awaken and stir and call his nation, his countrymen, to repentance and faith. Come to the Lord. This is him. And they stoned him. And there was Paul consenting to his death. He said, you know, it, it, he wasn't turning a blind eye, like pretending that he didn't see it. He was, he was one of those people, you know, when I preach, I look out and I see you, and many of you are nodding your head. You're consenting and you're encouraging and you're, uh, you know, you're listening. That's what Paul was doing. They're stoning him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Oh, good throw. That's what Paul was doing with these uh, people. Uh, later on, we see in verse 3 of chapter 8, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He wreaked havoc. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, this is directly leading before God's appearance to him in his conversion. It said, Paul, or rather Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, I love that phrase, any of the way, the way, the truth, the life of Jesus Christ. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Why? So that they could prosecute them. They could squelch the problem. They could stop it, uh, stop the cause of Christ from moving any further. God appears to Paul and uh, he, and he, tells Paul to go to this man named Ananias after that. And Ananias knew, that he, he demonstrates that there was common knowledge that this Saul guy, he was no good. Because Ananias is actually told, you're going you're gonna to help 
Saul here. You're, I'm going to use you in this guy's life. Go, go talk to Saul. And Ananias goes, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He was worried, and it was common public knowledge that Saul was up to no good, and he was going to be in direct personal danger based off of the edicts and the orders that Saul had in his hand to come after him. So do you think uh, the disciples here at Jerusalem had something to worry about potentially? If this was the only information that they knew, you better believe it. I would be scared of it. Now, I do want to point out, and and you're going to see as we go through here, Again, this is a historical record, and, it, and this historical record is not laid out for us exactly in A, B, then C, then D, then E, then F. While it does go linear in fashion, at times, Paul goes back to this important part, this, his conversion. He gives testimony and witness of what God did in his life multiple times and in various contexts and depending on who he was talking to he would give more details about what went on and so we find out you know this happened and then we have to go later on into acts we will acts chapter 22 to hear paul tell of his conversion from his own mouth and we'll get even more details about what's going on Another key passage that we have to layer in to really get a this, then this, then this, then this picture is Galatians chapter 1. All right, so hold your hand in the book of Acts chapter 9 and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. And if you want to put a little bookmark, put a bookmark here because we'll probably have to back, uh, hop back here. Again, this helps us make sense of the passage and understand what's really going on here. But Galatians chapter 1, and let's begin uh, in verse 16. All right, this is, Paul again is actually talking about his special conversion. All right, and that's already happened here in the book of Acts. And how God has special plans and commissioning for the Apostle Paul. And he says uh, that God uh, wanted to, or wants to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is what happened when Paul learned this. So he was just newly converted. He states this, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, out into the desert, and returned again to Damascus. Paul saying, And and we see a a distinction. Paul is separating, even from his conversion, he didn't go and just get more of what God was already doing. We see from the very moment Paul trusted Christ as his Savior, we see God's special mark upon Paul, that God was doing something special. And he said, no, you're you're even going to stay distinct from those other apostles and disciples. You you don't need them yet. All you need is me, because I have plans for you. And in fact, go to verse 18 of Galatians chapter 1. Here he says, then after how long? Three years 
I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. From the time of Paul's conversion until he actually gets to Jerusalem, it's actually been a time span of three years uh, until we see him going to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, and we see him here trying to get a gaining, getting an audience before all of the disciples in Jerusalem. If by the point of three years, would you think that maybe his testimony would have had enough time to stand the test of, oh, okay, uh, this, this wasn't just a flash in the pan. This guy, he's the real deal. Now, from my, con- my point of view, I would think, yeah, three years, and, and he's still going, and, and he, was, he was working in, in Damascus there, and he was ministering, and he was receiving. I would think, yeah, this, this isn't just a fly by the seat of his pants. This just wasn't an, a, a ploy of the enemy to go co- covertly and convert to become, you know, part of the, the enemy so that he could, you know, get a, a secret following. Three years was enough, so we would think. Nevertheless, uh, you know, the, the skepticism it makes sense, you know, uh, from their point. Time is often the salve that helps heal the wounds and binds together the worries of the skeptic. Um, yet, they still struggled to believe he was a disciple, so this is where God brings in someone special, something else, and, and we'll, we'll just walk away with the principle of when there is time, and God uses time to heal things like that. Where there's rifts and broken relationships, God can use the, the, uh, um, the authenticity, the, the sincerity, that whatever he's doing in Paul's life, he can use that time to rebuild and to build the trust that was broken. But there are times where maybe more is needed, and that's exactly what's going on here when we're talking about the heart of, of God's program for Israel and the leaders of leaders. If Paul really went deep undercover for three years and he went after the kingdom leaders of the church, he could derail the whole work, couldn't he? You know, we got the big guy, you know, uh, we got their leaders. And so they were worried about that. Now we have coming to his aid, a special man named Barnabas. Look with me in verse 27 of Acts chapter 9. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of the Lord. Now, what did, what did it matter that Barnabas stepped forward and vouched for the apostle Paul? Well, Barnabas already had an audience with these disciples and with the apostles there. In fact, he was a trusted brother. If you go back earlier in the book of Acts in chapter 4, around verses 36 and 37, we see that the apostles themselves actually saw this brother and he was doing what the Lord asks. This, is, this was in, in the part of, of Israel's history there, uh, as the, the kingdom church was uh, growing, 
that they were to sell all they had and have all things in common. And Barnabas is singled out as, as a, an exemplary follow of the Lord that he did this. And the apostles saw something in his character, how he handled himself, how he worked with people, that they changed his name and they gave him the name Son of Encouragement. If someone's changing my name, Lord, let it be that others would see in me that I am a son of encouragement. And so they saw this because he was characterized by it. It was an overwhelming landmark of this man's character. And this is a shining display of that because Barnabas was willing to see and look at Paul and say, well, this guy, he's been doing what he's doing for three years already. And he was willing, though he didn't understand it. None of the Jews at this time understood that God was, was setting them aside and that he was going to do something new. Imagine how hard that would have been to accept. Because they had scrolls and scrolls full of promises and promises that blessing and future kingdom and all of that was to be through them. This was kept secret. Nobody knew. Yet there was a God-shaped bent in the heart of Barnabas that he saw God unequivocally working his grace in Paul. And he was willing to do a hard thing and step up and speak for him and say, I see what God is doing here. Do I understand it? No, but I see God. And there's encouragement for each of us. That, and I ask myself the question, am I willing to, when I don't understand anything, can I rest and just say, but God, I see God working and I don't understand it, but I see what God has promised. I see what he says, and I'm willing to trust him. But God, Barnabas was a son of encouragement. Imagine the comfort that that brought to Paul's heart whenever uh, he, he stepped forward. Now, I will point it out that Barnabas and Saul may have potentially crossed paths at some point. Many people think that they did because Saul came from, anybody remember what city? Saul of Tarsus, all right? So there's a little island just south out in the sea there. There's an island called Cyprus, and that is where uh, Barnabas was from. And so they were very close proximity. They ran in similar circles. So many people think that Barnabas, or at least there was kind of like a friendly fire of sorts, that Barnabas may have been a little bit more open because he's like, ah, oh, this guy's from my neck of the woods. Okay. Oh, and, and Barnabas was a Levite. Saul was a Levite. All right. So there, that may have been there, but no matter what, he was willing to trust God. And as Barnabas steps forward and vouches and gives his stamp of approval, and he takes the trust that was invested that the apostles and the disciples had in Barnabas, Barnabas was willing to put that on the line so that that same trust that was invested in him, that they would also invest it in the apostle Paul. And he gave three different evidences of Paul's testimony. And it was Paul's testimony, again, that gave 
that dispelled the fear for them. And in that, again, we look in verse 7, he said, He declared to them how he had seen the Lord. This is referencing Paul's conversion itself. And then he testified how Christ had spoken to Paul. Well, the second thing that Barnabas brings up is not just that Paul re- or Saul really was converted, he was commissioned of God. He was given a special plan and purpose and ministry. And then he begins to tell how Paul immediately started preaching in Damascus. He started preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. He references Paul's, what I will say, his conversation, his conduct, how Paul immediately handled himself. And you could see the fruit. You could see the evidence and the reality of both his conversion and his commission. I'll submit to you, and it's worth our interest, that these three evidences that come from our testimony, the story of our conversion That we are sinners saved by grace. There was nothing we could do. And when we share with others the story of that time in our lives where we recognized we could not do it without God's help. That we were lost and separated forever in our sins. And when we recognize that he did it for us on our behalf and he offers it to us as a gift and we simply receive By faith, we take that gift, that conversion story. Nobody can take that away from me. Nobody. And how do you fight when somebody's telling you, no, Jesus Christ saved me from my sins? That truth, that dispels the doubt of it. You see, when the focus is not about what Paul did, it was all about what Christ did. And then uh, moving from conversion to that commissioning. No, God has purpose for him. For us, we don't have a commission like the Apostle Paul did. You and I are not asked, we're not called, we're not invited to be apostles to the Gentiles. But you and I are on the same team because we've been called to be ministers of reconciliation. You and I are ambassadors for Christ. We have a commission by God that we are called to. And that, uh, when we keep referring again, it's not what I want to cook up, it's what God's doing, and God has called me to this, to serve him in this way. And then our conversation, our conduct, how we act, how we behaved. Paul, the grace of God took root in his life, and it produced life change. Titus chapter 2 says, The grace of God that appears to all men has appeared, and it teaches us uh, denying ungodly lusts and, and how to live soberly and righteously and godly in this world. Well, I'll tell you, in and of myself, I am none of those things. But as the grace of God appears and God's grace takes more and more hold of my life, he transforms me into those very things. He changes me. And that life change that God produced in Saul, that dispelled the fear and the doubt that those disciples had. Oh, okay. I don't understand it. You can sit here, though. You can have lunch with us. They took him in. And from there, um, we see that uh, Paul stayed along with them. 
All right, they at least let him have ear, uh, uh, meet with them a little bit, verse 28. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going. This is one of those other elements that supports and bolsters our testimony. Whenever we have trust that is broken with somebody, you know, we often think, or not, there's not even a, a broken trust. It was just never there to begin with. All right. And we often think, well, what do I need to do to get that back? And we just simply need to, as the Apostle Paul does, do what God, do the right thing. Do what God has called you to do. Do what his word says. Live a godly life. And he is about the calling. And he, he stayed there and he just did it. He went in and he went out, coming and going. He lived life with them. And that testimony lived out in the flesh where he was living out what God was doing. He was a tried and true example and testimony of that. And people could see for their very own eyes through that, Paul is the real deal. That proof is in the pudding. And I'll say this, this passage, just looking at Paul, you know, that had to be a hard place for him, right? You know, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll just go eat mud. Isn't that what the little little kid saying is? It would be so easy for me to be the Apostle Paul. I mean, I probably would have given up like a hundred times before this already. But, you know, somebody gives me their stamp of approval. It's like, oh, okay, they like me. Good, I'll see you later. You know, I don't want to hang out with you. you. You guys still don't really like me, you know. But the Apostle Paul, he's there, and there's a confidence, and he just stays, and he does what God has. And we see, what is he doing? Well, he's preaching. It says in verse 29, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the, um, the Hellenists. This passage encourages me to remain faithful and steadfast in situations where I may not have the trust of those around me. One of the greatest tools is our consistency, our authenticity, and our sincerity. Only these characteristics, given the benefit of time, can allow that trust to be built and those relationships to flourish and grow. And that's what we see because we see favorable ministry amongst God's people together in future times. So praise the Lord for an event and an account like this where Paul and Barnabas was willing to step forward uh, to to speak for and vouch for the Apostle Paul. Well, uh, we move uh, targets here and Paul is no longer the source of contention. They've they've kind of accepted him. All right, we've got this. Now, as Paul goes about his commission, and he goes, and he's going to the Hellenists. These were Greek-speaking Jews that were in Jerusalem there. Uh, They do not like his message. Well, what was his message? What was he talking about? Well, it says in verse 29, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul went and did what he did all the time. Paul was about one thing and one thing only. Not a thing, but a him. He was about Jesus Christ. And when he went to those Hellenists, what he had for them was a message about Jesus Christ, and he wanted them to know him. But because of the unbelief of their hearts, know that the disciples, they were weary. I, I wouldn't put them in a, in a category of unbelief. I'd, I'd put them, 
it's semantics, but I'd probably say they were more disbelieving, right? They were like, I, I just, I can't. I can't figure this out. The Hellenists, they wouldn't. I don't want to. I will not. The disposition of, these, of this population took them from this category and removed them even further from the Lord. And to the point that I can't, I won't believe this. And anybody that does believe this, anybody that will push this, I want gone. And that's what they wanted with Paul. They wanted to kill the apostle Paul. Let's get this thorn in our side out of the way. And so, um, so Paul uh, speaking boldly with them. Now, uh, in situations like this, we're reminded uh, that Paul most likely knew, and oftentimes he knew that these Jews, they didn't want anything to do with his message, but his burden was so great, his burden was so grand Uh, that he felt compelled. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 9 through 11? He said, I wish for my own countrymen, I wish I could just be a curse from Christ so that they could know. His heart was for his people to know the Lord. Oh, that we would all have the fervency of heart and the desire for others to experience God's grace to the same level that we have so that they could be free from their sins and they could be alive to Christ in them. His methodology is interesting. Not only does he go straight for them, he has the burden and he does something with it. But it says that he went to them and the new King James and the King James both render this, that he disputed against the Hellenists. Now, that gives me the picture in my English-speaking eye that Paul would go in and he goes, hey, I got a bone to pick with you. I'm going to dispute against. You know, it, it all, our, the way we use those words, if we're in a dispute, are we in a, in a happy, good place with one another? No, we're disputing. And if, are, you know, we use the language, are, are you for me or are you against me? All right, so if I'm disputing against man, that, that's harsh language. And, and it's really easy for us to take a harsh disposition when we're moving towards people with a life-giving message. It's easy for us to, to speak at them and dispute. And you're wrong, and I'm going to give you 10 bullet reasons why you're wrong. Well, that makes me... That, you know, who, uh, who likes to cuddle up to a porcupine, right? That's not so comfortable. And when we, we come at, we dispute against, oh, whoa. Uh, now, we know that the truth of Jesus Christ was, their hearts were hardened to the truth. But we never want the truth, uh, we never want the transmission of the truth, uh, the way we communicate, the way we talk, the vehicle of it. May, their, may they choose to not believe because of the truth and not me as the bearer of grace and the, the vehicle of that. Does that make sense? I said that it's translated here, to, to, uh, disputed against. I believe what, what is a bit more accurate depiction of this and is picked up in, in, in multiple translations is that Paul debated with them. He debated, he brought, and he looked at, and he saw evidence together. He brought evidence toward them. 
That's a far different picture of where I can move towards you and we can discuss and we can go back. We're not going to be on the same page, but we come together and we can talk. How we're growing in our society, uh, uh, we're, we're rapidly going away from the ancient and tried and true of being able to have discourse and communication as things become more video and discourse and we see things on social media. I, I've seen it in astounding numbers these past few years, this last year in particular. We're moving more and more to one-sided communication. What I mean by that is kind of like what I'm doing right now. I'm talking, now this is not my intent, but I could be up here and I'm talking at you and I'm just telling you and I'm giving you and you do with it whatever you want to do. Whereas Paul approached them because we're dealing with people's hearts, right? We're dealing with people's hearts and he saw that and so he comes towards them and he shares evidences and he goes back and forth with that And might we be all encouraged that this is how we approach a heart today. Not at them, not lobbing, not, oh, I got a real zinger for you. You'll have nothing to say about this. It's easy. I get it. It makes me feel really good about myself. By the way, I feel really smart. But that does nothing for the conversion of the soul. Might we take the approach that Barnabas had where he came along and he was a son of encouragement and he spoke and he came he and and it actually literally says he took paul by the hand like arm in arm and he went with them may that be the approach we have to win souls for jesus christ that's what paul was about we see it clearly evident in his early ministry here There were challenges in that ministry, but we see that Paul's testimony, because it was the truth and it was the working of God and the truth of God will always set us free and that freedom will dispel fear. God's truth dispels fear. I don't know where you're at, what fear might be in your heart, in your life, what frustrations, perhaps even what failures. But what I see in this passage is that God works through them. Perhaps you need a, a, a Barnabas in your life to come and encourage you. We pray for that. We probably have that for us here. But with that, we see God working and God's grace, Jesus Christ magnified through the testimony of the Apostle Paul in his early life. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your love. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the testimony that we have of the Apostle Paul. And uh, Lord, there's so many characters that we see here, whether it was Paul, whether it was Barnabas, the disciples where they were willing to trust you. Lord, there was so much going on that looking backward, I don't even understand. Much less in the chaotic mix, in the the midst of these events happening real time, Lord, it would have been so challenging to, to question and not understand what was going on. But Father, from the lives of these characters, might we see that you are always able to be trusted. There is no need for fear. Your truth dispels that fear. Father, for my brothers and sisters here this morning, where there is fear, may your truth abound. May your grace give them what they need. May you be glorified in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.